The explosion was heard all over town. Little pieces of the man was all that they found. But the kitty came back the very next day. Thought he was a goner, but the cat came back because he wouldn't stay away. Well, they gave This is hell. Live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people, this is hell. Agroecology is, as today's guest explains, a science practice and movement that combines indigenous and practitioner wisdoms with principles of ecology to generate sustainable and equitable food systems. Last week, we discussed how this process is taking place in Nicaragua with writer and translator Rohan Rice. Rohan quoted Marlene Sanchez of the global peasant movement La Via Campesina, describing agroecology as an inherently anti-capitalist food production system. It also came up about a month ago when we spoke with sociologist Caitlin Shearing about water sovereignty in Brazil. Caitlin saw agroecology as a system that is antithetical to today's industrial agriculture. We've also discussed abolition in the past and the prison industrial complex, a term coined by past guest Mike Davis. Abolitionism rejects the idea of stopping at reform, be it to slavery, prisons, or police, and instead wants to replace those structures with alternatives, again, as today's guest explains. One process, agroecology, holds the promise of addressing climate change, repairing nature and our relationship with it, including protecting us from future pandemics. The other, abolitionism, has the potential to end racialized police violence and the institutions that support and reinforce systemic racism. So, what if the two got together into one project? We'll find out what that might look like in a few. We speak with Maiwa Montenegro DeWitt, author of Abolitionist Agroecology, Food Sovereignty, and Pandemic Prevention. Dr. Montenegro is an associate editor for the Journal of Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems, serves on the board of the Journal of Agriculture and Human Values, and co-facilitates the Agroecology Research Action Collective, as an assistant professor in the Department of Environmental Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Maiwa braids a background in molecular biology and science journalism into critical social science approaches to food systems research and education. You can follow Maiwa on Twitter at Maiwa Montenegro. That's M-A-Y-W-A. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is... Richard Norwood. Richard, anything new by you? Mr. Charles. Yes, sir. (laughs) I love when people call me Mr. Charles. (laughs) Oh, not a whole lot. I went and visited my parents last weekend. Oh, did you? How'd you get there? Did you drive or fly? Oh, no, I drove. But uh, Indiana and Ohio are virus-free, it seems. (laughs) (laughs) You stopped to get gas by chance? (laughs) I did, yes. It's always cheap in Indiana. (laughs) And maskless for miles. Yes, it's very, it's frightening. It's really frightening. There's this one gas station in Chesterton. Chesterton. That's uh, across the street <laughs> from a Maserati dealership, which is really weird. And yeah, I didn't see one person in there wearing a mask, mm-hmm. except for one guy behind the counter, and everybody else was just giving me the stink eye. But I have to say, I love my car. 
I was getting close to 40 miles to the gallon. <laughs> Look at that. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> I spent the last night last night doing what I, I I could to clean the freaking house because for the first time since 2019, since before the pandemic made landfall in the United States, we're actually hosting someone. My girlfriend and I are going to have a visitor who's staying at our place for a couple of weeks. Two weeks. We haven't had someone in our house for more than 10 minutes since Thanksgiving of 2019. Well, maybe, maybe it was closer to Christmas. More than a year and a half ago. And now someone is staying for a fortnight. When we scheduled the visit what, months ago, after we all got our, get our second doses of the vaccines, we figured that one way or the other, by now we would know the efficacy of the vaccines and whether it would be safe to have someone outside our pod stay in our home for two full weeks. Of course... Now, the company distributing the vaccine I received is suggesting a third dose, a booster, will likely be necessary. As evolutionary biologist Rob Wallace told us, it would be six weeks ago in early June. So we really don't know anything more than we did when we decided back in April that it would be safe for someone to stay at our house. And when it comes to the virus or any of us transmitting, say, the Delta variant to each other, I'm really not that concerned. We're fully vaccinated. Our guest gets their own bedroom to sleep and work. Our place is on the third floor overlooking a park, is well-ventilated, gets strong cross-breezes. So any anxiety I have about COVID is some, somewhat mollified, but my anxiety over how to socialize, how to actually host a guest, about whether our home is prepared to be seen by outside eyes, that anxiety is through the roof. Why? Because after cleaning all last night, one of our cats decided it was a good time to go into the room where our guest will be staying and pee on the couch. So anxiety about getting coronavirus, sure. But my real anxiety is over whether or not our home is worthy of taking in a guest. But more importantly than any of that, Richard, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, who will be the last, oh, I did it again. Who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? You can leave your answer at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we will be announcing this week's winner. And this week's winner gets a choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Maiwa. We got an email overnight from Aram, who writes to us about our conversation from last week with Rohan Rice on food sovereignty and agroecology in Nicaragua. Aram writes, Greetings, Chuck and Alex. I hope this finds you well. I'm a fan of the show and listen to it often while I'm at work. I appreciate all y'all do to amplify radical voices and engage in critical dialogue. And the way y'all are able to do that in an accessible, down-to-earth way. I have some reflections about episode 1359 and a few recommended guest speakers that might help to deepen your listeners' understanding of what is going on in Nicaragua. I appreciate you all having an episode focusing on food sovereignty and agroecology as someone who has been involved in a number of agroecological farming and gardening projects here in the United States and has worked with La Via Campesina and some of its member organizations in the past. I think it's incredibly important to be uplift to be uplifting the amazing work being done and the visions being proposed by global peasant movements. I hope that you can continue to feature discussions around agroecology and how it is being practiced and spread by peasant social movements around the world. I do wish to share a few concerns about Rohan Rice 
Weiss's piece in People's Dispatch and his interview with you that I hope you will consider. Rohan, uh, Rohan's use, Rohan uses the discussion of food sovereignty and agroecology in Nicaragua to present an overly simplistic narrative of the Sandinista FSLN party as the defender of socialism and national sovereignty versus the forces of neoliberalism and U.S. imperialism. This overly simplistic narrative has been used by supporters of Ortega to paint anyone who participated in the 2018 uprisings, the April 19th movement, and who criticizes the FSLN as coup supporters or golpistas, or in the pocket of Yankee imperialists. They use the fact that some who participated in the diverse opposition to Daniel Ortega and the FSLN have appeared have appealed to the U.S., met with right-wing U.S. politicians, and that some groups have received money from USAID to mischaracterize the entire popular opposition as right-wing pro-imperialist and directed by the CIA. This has proven a useful framing for Ortega supporters to invalidate, ignore the very real outrage being expressed by the Nicaraguan people or to meaningfully engage in any of the criticisms of the government, many of which are coming from the anti-authoritarian left. Sadly, this dynamic is not unique to Nicaragua. We all know that the United States is at all times aiming to assert its influence through aid money and other means. And that conservatives and neoliberals are going to seize any opportunity to empower the reactionary elements within any popular uprising. But a narrative that frames the entire uprising as an orchestration of the CIA completely strips away the agency of people on the ground. And when perpetrated or perpetuated by Western leftists, borders on being straight up racist, as if the Nicaraguan people aren't capable of understanding their situation in all its complexity and mobilizing to change their conditions. Another effect of this simplistic binary mentioned above is the erasure of Ortega's neoliberal and right-wing policies. There is such a vast disconnect between the way Western leftists imagine Ortega as a champion of socialism and the reality of Ortega's often authoritarian and neoliberal policies. The way that many Western leftists have framed the situation in Nicaragua and blindly defended Ortega and the current FSLN is reflected in the article, The Periphery Has No Time for Binaries by Joy Ayub, who would also make a great guest. Ayub writes, Western leftists will continue to treat our dead the same way they treat us while alive as pawns in an imagined global chessboard where forces of evil battle the forces of good. Our lives do not have meaning beyond such constructs in these circles. Aram says, what I would humbly ask you to do is interview Nicaraguans who can give their perspectives on the situation in Nicaragua and their elections. Below are a few suggestions, Miranda and or Mark of the podcast Between Rum and Bullets. Mark is the author of a great piece titled Nicaragua is Not Venezuela and All Governments Lie. Miranda's uh, helped to produce a new study on the Gray Zone's conspiratorial imperialism. Jose Luis Roca, author of the recent article, Why Did Daniel Ortega Imprison His Former Comrades?, Thank you so much for taking uh, in these thoughts and into consideration and keeping up the amazing work. Thanks, Aram. I really appreciate it. Our conversation with Rohan, uh, as Aram writes, focused on uh, agroecology and the potential for it to be spread by groups like La Via Campesina. While Rohan commented the state and the Sandinista government of Daniel Ortega, or commended the state and the Sandinista government of uh, Daniel Ortega for whatever role they have played in Nicaragua's fight for food sovereignty while under sanctions from the United States. He also pointed to the fact that in the upcoming elections in November, Ortega will be facing 17 other candidates, including many from the left. However, I can completely understand why that interview may have come off as supporting Ortega. That was certainly not our intent immediately following the show. I spoke with someone who said that they don't trust Ortega, Ortega, and rightly so, but 
I went back to something that we discussed back in September of last year when we spoke with Robert Vitalis, author of Oilcraft, The Myths of Scarcity and uh, Security That Haunt U.S. Energy Policy. And that is this focus on electoral politics and picking sides between one government and another is the framework through which you understand any issue. It brings me to a much bigger question. What is it about Nicaragua that leads all conversations on indigenous rights, food sovereignty, and agroecology to reactions focused on supporting or opposing the government of Daniel Ortega? Ortega is clearly not representative of all, all Nicaraguans. So why do all conversations of any social movement happening within Nicaragua come down to talks about whether or not we should or the guest does support Ortega? What, what do we or our guests miss in focusing on the state instead of their people? What happens when we dismiss social movements because... Some are seen carrying a flag of the United States or burning them, for that matter. I mean, when we cover the battle for Seattle or Occupy or last summer's protests against racialized police violence, we didn't ask if these movements were allied with President Clinton or Obama or were pro-Biden or Bernie, nor did we judge their legitimacy based on that perceived allegiance. Why not judge movements based on their own merits rather than whose side we think they're on? So if you want to hear another perspective on Ortega, go back to our 2018 interview with Courtney Desiree Morris when she spoke with us from Nicaragua, which you can find at thisishell.com. Aram, thank you for the guest suggestions. We always prioritize having guests in country rather than outsider analysis and analysts. So we really appreciate your suggestions. You can email us at chuckatthisishell.com, direct message us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or send us a message via Facebook, or just send us stuff in the mail. And if you do, we'll likely share it on air. Coming up, abolitionist agroecology. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? The person with our favorite answer gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see it all right now. Thisishell.com when you click on support. Live from the nightmare of want, this is... Hell, agroecology challenges industrial agriculture by offering an alternative of sustainable practices that changes our relationship with nature and can defend us from potential future pandemics and might mitigate the worst aspects of climate change. Abolitionism, meanwhile, stands in defiance against the carceral state and the prison industrial complex, demanding an end to police and prisons, as well as the concept of justice as vengeful violence. Here to help us understand both concepts and what happens when the two are combined. Maiwa Montenegro-DeWitt is author of Abolitionist Agroecology, Food Sovereignty, and Pandemic Prevention. Welcome to This Is Hell, Maiwa. Hi there, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me. You can follow Maiwa on Twitter, at Maiwa Montenegro. That's M-A-Y-W-A Montenegro. You write how agroecology aims for an end to the export orientation of agricultural markets imposed on many countries, particularly in the global south, an end to measures of success cast in a productionist mold that cannot see success in other terms, and end to compartmentalized and reductionist thinking that cannot accommodate relational ecological understandings and worldviews, and and end the Malthusian mantra of feeding the world, which, like a zombie, has long been dead but haunts us still, and appreciating that the concentration of power in food systems is and always has been racialized. Why is feeding the world a long-dead idea? What's wrong with that idea when considering whether we need, for instance, 
industrial agriculture to feed the world. Right, right. Yes, one of my former um, mentors, I was a postdoc fellow at UC Davis said, you know, I think this is really a zombie. It's the thing that keeps haunting us. You open almost any popular newspaper, magazine, in the first paragraph, I was a journalist, so we call that the lead, you will find some reference to um, nine or 10 billion people needing to feed the world um, by 2050, either by doubling food production um, or uh, increasing yield by 70% or so. And it's not just the popular media, it's also um, prominent peer review literature that almost inevitably you will see a reference to overpopulation as the uh, the core problem, right? This is what is um, at, the, at the source of global hunger, food insecurity. And it's kind of mind boggling because we've known for decades, at least since Amartya Sen, that that is not the core problem at all. The core problem is inequality, which is driven at the source. And I think that your radio program has, you know, gone into layers and layers of this is inequality driven by uh, colonialism, imperialism, and global capitalism. So once we get that out of the way, we are kind of grounded in a different analysis of the root cause problems, because those, of course, will then branch out into food systems, into issues of global distribution. We have in the U.S. a longstanding highly racialized farm bill that has take, basically blown the lid off of production. Farmers are subsidized and encouraged um, to produce more and more and more commodity crops. They are underpaid for the crops. Um, so the farm gate prices are too low. The government comes in, sweeps in, pays them um, to stay afloat because they're paid under the costs of production. Um, of course, then the ADMs, the Cargills, sweep in, buy the cheap grain. Um, it goes through the pipeline of the, the, the Nestle's, the food companies, onto the Walmarts. The consumer winds up paying still probably not a, a lot as a proportion of their overall dollar. Um, but food could, could be much more affordable. And the ones who are really reaping the benefit here are the giant um, agrochemical, giant food retail, giant food processing firms that are in the center. So that is really what's driving hunger, food insecurity, obesity um, globally. And yet we talk about needing to produce more and more and more food. We have enough food. We have long produced somewhere on the range of 2,800 kilocalories per person per day globally, according to FAO statistics. And yet we keep talking about the problem being production. It's definitely not production. Or the problem is, and going in hand in hand with production, is overpopulation. What do you think is so attractive? Why do people so fall, always fall back on the real problem is we just have too many people? Right. Well, it goes at least back to Thomas Malthus, who was writing about the principles of population back in the um 18th century England, and he had this theory of population would increase on a geometric scale and food production would increase only um, arithmetically, so linearly. So if you have a curve and a line on a graph, at a certain point, the curved part is going to go faster than the line part. Holy bloody hell, the 
you know, we're going to run out of food. That math has completely been dismantled. But what he was really talking about is that there are too many poor people. It's the poorer that's important. And Malthus had all these theories about how the poor um, essentially, because of their moral incapacities, were reproducing like bunny rabbits, and they did not essentially have the capability to control their reproductive desires. Um, the the laws that he essentially was helping to propagate set into motion um, was more about eradicating the poor than eradicating poverty. So the overpopulation part has always been hitched to um, a discriminatory politics against the poor. So, Not really looking at that the consumption part, and there have been other discussions around we should pay a lot more attention to the resource intensive nature of the wealthy, um, which comprise a relatively small number of people. Population um, distribution there is way off the rails. The number, the population of wealthy who are using a lot of resources and then for, therefore having a consumer based impact is huge, but that's not a population issue. So one of the things that I know that this is a very general and very open question, but you point out that uh, you write that some of the agri-food systems features lead to the genesis of new diseases from agrarian landscapes, including but not limited to COVID-19. Other features enable uncontrolled infection and death as seen in outbreaks among meatpacking plant workers. Still others lead to greater hunger and food insecurity. And you write how these vulnerabilities reveal deep and interlinked ecological and social metabolic rifts, which may escape reductionist lenses of most experts in public health, but do not elude a pathogen that unimpeded by capitalist organization and imperatives continues to spread. And I realize that this is a very big question. You could probably answer this for the next 45 minutes, but what role has capitalism played in spreading the virus? Because this is something that is not within the mainstream public and political discussion right now. So what role has capitalism played in spreading the virus? So I think we could probably talk about the emergence potentially separately from the spread um, if you had Rob Wallace on the program, I heard in the introduction you did, which is fantastic. He's an epidemiologist, an ecological Marxist, somebody who has watched pretty much every evolution in the SARS-CoV-2, but long before connected um, global capitalism or you know late stage neo neoliberalism to the rise of different um, epidemics and pandemics around the world. And what I was doing last year as we were talking um, about lockdowns and as we were looking at you know, the US basically having no effective policy for contact tracing or for masking, um, I heard also like similarly here in Tennessee, we're again maskless. I was, I was more motivated to talk about the root cause problems because that's another essential, I think, tenet of agroecology and food sovereignty is to get beyond sort of symptom level crises and ask about root cause problems. So in conversation with the writings of Rob Wallace, I was thinking about, you know, how do we understand the intersection of um, industrial agriculture 
both in the United States and on the periphery where we have kind of carving into um, the last of the forests in, in certain areas, how does that dovetail or not with our understanding of the rise of um, epidemics and pandemics? So I don't know how much into depth Rob went with you on the program, but his theory, um, which he has elaborated at book length, there's in fact a new book called Dead Epidemiologist, is that um, we have to understand you know, things a little bit from a virus's point of view, right? And so a virus has basically DNA or RNA, and it needs another organism as its host in order to reproduce. And the more um, deadly a virus is, it can afford that virulence. It can afford to be deadly if it can, if it can spread more effectively. It has to kind of tamp down on how deadly it is if it's hard to spread. And nature provides some of that friction to viral spread. So we'll have, if you have a very biodiverse environment, you'll have a lot of things contributing to it. You might have issues of kind of population density in the organisms. You might have like physical obstacles um, that make it hard for organisms to like leap over a river or a mountain. But you know, what is a really important part is the is the genetic diversity. So you basically have a community, a reservoir with extraordinarily high um, genetic variability that makes it hard for a virus to simply hopscotch and like blaze through a population. Um, now in, this is a contested thesis, I would say about the viral origins. I'm sure you've heard about the lab leak thesis. There's a lot going on in terms of, you know, I think pinpointing um, where it came from. I have a, I have some, a lot of questions and issues about like the implications of this, um, especially to the extent that it kind of distracts from what we know is a very problematic way of farming. But one idea, and this has again been elaborated by Wallace and others, is that we've had for decades important transitions in places like China where there was in the late 1970s kind of um, a breaking up of the larger collectives into smallholder operations. Then in the 1990s, um, these dragon head enterprises and a really intense intensification of meat production. So now you've got this trifecta of logging and mining and agro industry carving into the last of forests and you get there kind of a loss of that friction. You get the possibility that you're kind of carving into forest patches where viral hosts, be they bats or other organisms, are coming into more frequent contact with humans and the possibility of a spillover event from a viral host into a human is much more uh, possible and those, those events are more frequent and therefore the spillover more possible. Whether there was that spillover event and then the human made their way to an urban center like a wet market or whether that spillover happened in an urban center, I think we're, the former is increasingly seen as more likely. Um, and I go into that a little bit in the story, but that ecological piece is one really important part because it has to do with the way that global agribusiness, global capitalism is essentially destroying biodiversity and the ecological friction 
in places where um, viruses have traditionally circulated all the time, but were relatively contained, kind of snuffing in and snuffing out in small ecological niches. Now that there are those events, and by the way, once they make their way to a market in Wuhan, it's only a matter of days, and they've used mobile phone data to trace this, that it's hopscotched onto Beijing, then onto Sao Paulo, Singapore, London, New York, San Francisco. The circuits of global capitalism make the uh, transmission just like wildfire. And Mike Davis has a really great couple of essays on this just to see how the, it's not only about the emergence and the rates and the spillover, but also the transmissibility um, that is, you can trace it on the circuits of global capitalism. And you also point out that it's, you know, as we all know, it's very misleading to call this the Wuhan virus or the China virus or calling it the Indian variant or the British variant or the Brazilian variant. And you point out, and I believe it's Mike Davis again saying, pointing towards an outbreak that happened in the aughts uh, in Mexico and how that outbreak uh, should have been called the, I think it was a swine flu outbreak in 2009, should have been called the NAFTA virus rather than the uh, Mexico virus or whatever else you wanted to call it. So what do you Mm -hmm. think is the appropriate name for the current coronavirus that we have? What do you think it should be called, if not Wuhan or Delta or British? What do you think it should be called? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, I think we will never know exactly which pieces of this kind of corrosion of global ecology contributed to it. Maybe we'll get closer to a hypothesis, um, and then we could call it something like the agribusiness virus or the the industrial ecology, the forest mining virus. I don't know, to be honest, um, if we will pinpoint the aggressor, but I would say that what that argument about NAFTA is doing is pulling us away from the local site to look in political ecology. We often talk about chains of explanation to pull back, walk ourselves back to the chains of explanation and causation. What is driving this process, right? And that in, in the case of H1N1 in Mexico, it was very much about the breakdown of previous uh, trade barriers. So we had trade liberalization. Smithfield was able to make its way down into Mexico and basically because of liberalized trade regulations, lacks oversight on anything to do with their processes, lax environmental laws, um, you know, set up a hog operation that very likely contributed to the outbreak and spread of H1N1. And so I think Rob may have nicknamed it um, the NAFTA virus. And I, I think that doing that kind of labeling, whether we can get the CDC to do that, I, I doubt it. But if we can compel our colleagues and critics on the left to look at the drivers and start to think more about um, those root causes that I reflected on earlier, name the things for what they are, we'll, we'll have made some progress here. So, you know, I would call it agribusiness virus or the capitalist agriculture virus or the racial capitalist agriculture. And we get into a lot of descriptors and those, you know, you have to think about what's press friendly too. And you write that most abolitionists and agroecologists have heard some version of the response, 
isn't that unrealistic. Skeptics in the USA who worry that safe schools and universities are impossible without police are often surprised to learn that nearly all countries on Earth have already achieved this feat. People who ask if agroecology can feed the world either have not heard about or ignore the fact that small-scale, diversified agriculture fed most pre-industrial societies, including advanced civilizations. They may not know agroecology is feeding people today, even as dominant food systems fail them. Can we feed ourselves as pre-industrial societies once did? Aren't there simply, we're getting back to the Malthusian thing here again, aren't there simply too many people now with too big of appetites to feed them as we did pre-industrial societies? Right. (laughs) So I think one of the most frustrating things that my colleagues and I encounter, and, you know, and it's not just interactions with uninformed folks who are like, isn't that impossible? Or isn't that just romantic? It's, it's definitely with colleagues, even in our own fields or departments who think that um, what we're talking about might even be great, but it's just a little too utopian or a little too unrealistic. Um, like um, maybe in 2070, we'll be talking about those things. Isn't that pretty? Um, and I think our response has to be, it's not only possible, it is actually happening already. And it sounds like, um, I enjoyed listening, by the way, to the podcast on Nicaragua. Um, These solutions are underfoot. We are helping them in the least possible way, like the the laws, the, um, you know, ranging from the way that we fund research and development. There's a lot of good um, data on the underfunding of agroecological R&D, all the way to the way the farm bill policy still functions. We're not helping these solutions to thrive in any way, shape, or form. And yet, because of the dialectics of, you know, oppression and resistance, they are already happening. And we have examples from around the world. I think you've already heard in depth about Nicaragua, Um, Cuba is a real interesting crucible of agroecology in resistance to the economic embargo and blockade. Um, The landless workers of Brazil um, are a very important um, movement that uh, as part of La Via Campesina and in their struggle to um, regain access to land that has basically not been serving the social function again, are are showing us that it's not this kind of ideal. It's not anything um, overly romantic or unrealistic. It is possible. We know how to do it. It's based on centuries, in fact, millennia of traditional ecological knowledge from indigenous communities that has dovetailed since roughly the 1980s, though you can trace elements back to the 1930s, of Western science in ecology and agronomy coming together to be called agroecology that has learned from um, indigenous wisdom, indigenous practices of how to cultivate biodiversity, live within communities of organisms, human and non-human life uh, in reciprocity with functions. Um, ser- sometimes they're called services, right? Because that anthropocentric lens that we like to think about how nature can serve us. I think in ecology, the lens is more about reciprocity and renewal, renewal of life. 
So I just love to point people to examples of how agroecology and food sovereignty is thriving. The abolitionist movement, I think, is at its strongest when it doesn't fall into that trap as well and, and points to where communities are already effectively, despite uh, the extreme presence of over-policing on campuses and in our cities, like people make people safe is really the bottom line. And to the extent that we are pouring more and more funding into over-policing, um, we are undercutting that. And the answers are never to be found in expanding militarization, expanding the violence and undercutting all of the social uh, services. You know, here we get into the basic politics of free education and debt free, uh, debt free education and rent controlled housing, all the things that we know lend themselves to inequality and therefore to the reproduction of violence, that there's a, a very long conversation to be had there about what we need to actually be doing to create safe safety. It's not more policing. You mentioned Cuba and their success within agroecology, yet the front page of the New York Times on Monday had a huge headline about the deprivations in <clears throat> Cuba leading to the protests. In that front page article, it isn't until paragraph 14 when they finally mentioned the U.S. trade embargo on Cuba and it might having an impact on what's happening mm -hmm. within Cuba. So mm -hmm. what would you say to, because a lot of people have been asking me questions about this. We talked to Cold Stangler about this in uh, June about what's happening within Cuba. Uh, and a lot of people have been asking us, they've been saying, you know, can you explain to me what's going on in Cuba when there's these protests going on, yet there's these, you know, claims that agroecology is working. So how do mm -hmm. you how do you balance those two things? This, you know, media saying that there are deprivations, ignoring the trade embargo, and at the same time, the success of agroecology in Cuba. Right. Well, first, I think I'm going to have to tip my hat to my colleague, Margarita Fernandez. She is an expert in this area. And I'd love to invite you to have her on the show. She's been working for a long time in the Cuba-US network, um, has been working intensively in the last month to try and lobby for um, the Biden administration to loosen the blockade and loosen the embargo. Because I think what's happening here, and I saw that New York Times article, um, and, you know, just seeing, and I was driving um, a, a few hours before and I heard it on NPR. I was like, this is suddenly mainstream news. And there was probably a little March on Sunday, like <laughs> the rapidity with which it suddenly becomes like headline news in the U.S. is, is itself a little suspicious. Um, so I don't think it would be, it would be surprising if the U.S. was not involved somehow in, in stoking this um, resentment, but I don't want to put it all on that because I think people are really struggling. I think that the the economic blockade is real. It's resulting in in uh, deprivation, but I don't want to like use the same language that the Times used. It's it's due to the economic blockade. It's not because they are an inept, corrupt, whatever. Um, 
the dictatorial government that the U.S. always likes to paint in the first 13 passages of their articles, um, interviewing only dissidents from from Miami, right? Um, so the the way that agroecology really flourished there um, is part of the way I think that agroecology has a long history as a science practice and movement of resistance. So um, including in Mexico, where some authors kind of locate its origins, it was in, in resistance to World Bank projects and moves to implement a green revolution kind of style of farming, um, which, you know, once, it's, once it gets going, there are a lot of sunken costs, a lot of lock-ins, a lot of things that happen at the level of law and landscape change that are very, very hard to start undoing. And that's kind of where we are now in the US. In Cuba, they had the very interesting situation where of course their, their primary support was the former USSR um, for oil, for many things that would feed into kind of the fossil fuel basis of conventional agriculture, or I prefer to call it industrial agriculture. And um, when uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, of course, they were sort of met with this real problem. On one hand, they had the blockade of the US. On the other, they had um, kind of the umbilical cord cut off to those inputs that they on which they previously relied. Um, and rather than you know starve, they said, there's got to be a better way of doing this, right? And the ANAP, this is the Association of National Smallholder Producers, the acronym is ANAP in Spanish. Um, that social movement, which um, uses a style of farmer to farmer learning, farmer to farmer education, and the methodology there is of like a, a horizontal education. Um, really, really helped to ignite and spread the practice of um, an organic or a non-fossil fuel-based modality style of agriculture. And the government kind of was supportive of this through the Castro year. So I think that the analysis of that is having both the state, the top-down and the bottom-up dovetailing, meshing, and really helping to strengthen the flourishing uh, movement of agroecology is one that has resulted in what I would say is the poster child of agroecology from around the world. People go there to learn about how it works. It's one that has raised questions because it's a situation and set of circumstances that is fairly hard to replicate. But, and I've not gone there myself to look at agroecology. There's some uh, really wonderful uh, films online um, Fernandez Funes Monsote, I can like maybe share some links for the show notes, has a beautiful set of films that show how his farm, Finca Marta, basically went from like a, a landscape of rubble into like this beautiful, flourishing agroecological farm. It's an educational site, it's a training center, and it doesn't rely on any of these very, um, toxic, but also um, commodity-based and therefore reinforcing the capitalist system of accumulation set of inputs. It doesn't feed into this whole supply chain that we previously said is contributing to the concentration of power, wealth, and resources that is at the core of the food insecurity problem. So I think 
that is how Cuba, it's a very complicated picture right now with what's happening. And I don't want to wade into something and then regret that I've said live, like, and gotten, <laughs> gotten the trends exactly wrong. But, um, I would say, you know, be skeptical pretty much of anything you read in the times about Cuba. And I think your instinct when you see it buried on paragraph 14 is the appropriate kind of skepticism about that read. And you write about the racialized nature of the pandemic, the current pandemic, and uh, how the way that this, the, the major cable TV news networks have been blaming this all on China and talking about how this all came from China and focusing on China. Yet they uh-huh. don't ever actually talk to Chinese farmers. So just another question on the media. In your opinion, what explains that lack of an investigation by the media? Why is the media seemingly uninterested in the opinions of Chinese farmers, the same farmers who they blame for the pandemic. Right. Well, you know, we were living under Trump during the time and he was just talking about the Kung flu and the Wuhan virus, like the authoritarian populism that just oozed out of every one of his orange pores. I don't even have the words to say how repulsive just that naming of a virus um, after the people and not having really any understanding of the role of imperialism or agribusiness um, and global capital in promoting the origins and spread of the virus. Like, I, it's almost like I don't even have time for that. However, um, what we saw pretty consistently, especially in the early days, um, were that, um, and I have some quotes in the piece, people also condemning the exoticism of Chinese eating behaviors. So because it was thought early on to have emerged, they thought that there were, they thought that the um, animal to human spillover was in a wet market. Um, there were articles talking about the, the weird, creepy and exotic behavior behaviors of Chinese people who eat wild animals and live animals, right? So there was this kind of orientalization um, that was in mainstream media, um, just very gross. I think it lent itself almost assuredly to um, anti-Asian and anti-Asian American violence in the U.S., attacks on people, um, and Trump just fueled that flame. The, The... question about why we are not interviewing Chinese farmers, you know, I, I'd have to ask the, the, the bureau chiefs at the AP and the New York times. I feel like if their editors don't have that understanding or that analysis, that that might be where the story is, or, or maybe it's interviewing folks at Smithfield and JBS and Tyson to talk about the CAFOs and their role in creating the next pandemic. It's almost a certainty they are only on the outcomes end. Their their story's interest there is to be looking at how we deal maybe with racism, but as an outcome and as an unfortunate, unfortunate manifestation, but not really as, oh, these are these are problems that create that produce the problem in the first place. And that's really where racial capitalism comes into play, because it it helps us give a read on capitalism as something that it not only produces these kind of what we often refer to as disparities, like 
the deaths of more black and brown workers in the US um, as a proportion of the overall population in say supermarkets or um, the meatpacking industry, but that race and racism was a characteristic of feudalism that was then kind of brought in to the bottleneck in the transition from feudalism to capitalism helped propel the primitive accumulations that it enabled the dispossession of indigenous peoples in the United States. It enabled the enslavement of Africans and their um, enslavement in, into chattel slavery in the US. So that I, the idea that racism fuels the rise of modern capitalism and then is braided into it is one that I think is a very um, powerful analytic and, and somewhat different from the way that it's typically talked about even on the in the left in the United States. And I take no credit for this. It's, it's all the black radical tradition. I was just reading this and seeing it manifesting very palpably in what was happening everywhere from restaurants to the meatpacking district in industry to restaurant workers who were who were laid off. So that was kind of what I was talking about in how racial capitalism can be seen in the breakdowns of supply chains and who COVID is affecting the most and why. On abolitionist um, on abolitionist agroecology, you write that 20th century activist Fannie Lou Hamer is often recalled for her electoral activism, but the greater risk she and others took was to demand, to demand that the state support changes that communities were already making. In founding the Mississippi Freedom Farms Cooperative, she saw the community as a site of effective governance where black farmers could enact a prefigurative politics of collective ownership, collective care, and self-determination. Such retractions from using and participating in dominant systems undermine the core dependencies on which any oppressive system feeds, therein shifting the grounds for emancipatory strategies like abolition and agroecology to take hold. So does shifting the grounds for emancipatory strategies like abolition and agroecology, does it depend upon a a parallel collective approach outside the state that may at some point seek or get state support? Great question. And I will take this opportunity again. If people want to read more about Hamer and collectivism, um, the great Monica White professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison has a book out. It's also now in audio, so you can listen. It's called Freedom Farmers. It's just a gorgeous um, story about um, including the life of, of Hamer and her work on the pig cooperatives and others. And to get back to your question, I think one point that I, I don't want to end the interview without really underlining is that uh, I think frequently in abolitionism, perhaps because of the root of the word kind of being linked to the idea of destruction or dismantling, um, that is very true. I think that we can't get away from the impetus of abolition as being the eradication of settler colonialism, imperialism, heteropatriarchy, and the logics of the carceral states. Like that is fundamental. However, to only say that sometimes gives the impression that we don't also mean those things can never happen if we're not rooting the destruction in a creation or what Ruth Gilmore likes to say, like abolition is about the getting rid of all of that and about building life affirming institutions. It's about collective care. 
I heard a brilliant interview a few days ago with the grad students from abolition science and they had an artist named Jewel on the program. And she said, you know, I, I heard somebody say that abolition is about love. And if you have a politics of love and you come from a tradition on the left, collectivity is at the root of love. I am half indigenous. My father is from Peru. Our worldviews rooted in an Andean cosmovision, um, collectivity is very different from a liberal conceit of, that is based on the rational enlightenment doctrine. It's based on the ability of individuals to own objects and to have property rights over non-living organisms. That is not really a thing that exists in an indigenous Andean cosmovision. So I kind of want to put out there that collectivity is not something that is uh, even like an academic thing that I think about, it's really about a worldview based in an, in an Andean cosmovision, in an indigenous understanding of all living beings having subjectivity, having rights, having agency, and the relationships that we build with and grow together is what produces care. It It's what produces nourishment. It's how we have the services of pollination and water filtration and soil nutrient cycling on the earth when all of those organisms are, are reproducing ecological functions. That's why the whole concept of diversity and biodiversity in agroecology is so important. It doesn't mean everything is like a unicorn and beautiful. Some things eat other things, right? But they're in a balance. Um, and you can have those things that eat other things serving the role of the agrochemicals that now, of course, only feed the profits of industry. But that idea of collectivity and about um, the decision-making rights of communities, I think, is a way that we can start to build those solutions before the state is there. I think we have a really hard time making a case that abolition works without also showing evidence that we're doing these grassroots and community-based solutions, that we're building them and growing them up on the ground, I think the case is much stronger. Um, I don't think we have to meet the kind of evidentiary standards that the current racial capitalist state asks us, because that is very true in agroecology. They want us to show that we're producing the same kinds of yields as agroindustry. Well, like, that's not even the question we're trying to answer, right? And I think the same in abolition our metrics and standards are going to need to also be rooted in the communities of practice. So thanks. That's, a, that's kind of a, a, a mishmash response, but I hope that, that I get that that collectivity is, is key, it's central, it's fundamental, it's deeply lived experience. And I would say ontological to use the kind of jargon word. It's, a, it's based in an understanding of what being is so capitalism, as you point out in your writing, so capitalism, racism, globalization, the state, corporations, CAFOs, and their lack of biodiversity, these all contribute to the rise of pandemics and arguably climate change as well. Does the abolitionist agroecologist want to replace all these factors contributing to pathogens and pandemics with alternative systems? Because I guess my bigger question is, does changing how we produce food change everything? Right. 
Well, I was in a conversation a few days ago on a, in a panel around abolitionist food futures, and we had all our questions. I was all geared up like you are to ask these farmers my more theoretical questions, like how does racial capitalism connect to this and that? And, you know, one of the speakers really tugged us back to the centrality of land. Um, she was a Black sociologist and farmer has been working around the southern United States and, and creating a documentary around the lived experience of Black farmers who, as you know, through the decades and centuries since um, the formal um, ending of, of slavery have continued to experience um, kind of the undermining of their capacity to build wealth through land loss and land dispossession, and of course, then redlining that builds upon that. So land um, is a cornerstone. And I think having the rights, the what we call in food sovereignty, really the um, decision-making power over the capacity to organize your own systems of production and consumption, access to land, water, and seed that is not proprietary is, is really a way of breaking loose from those ties. So people have different reads on this. If you really want to be kind of radical about it, you can say, I don't really need any of the global capitalist system at all. As long as I can feed myself, I can survive. You know, I don't really need Walmart anymore. <laughs> I am a researcher who works at UC Santa Cruz. I still use the grocery store and I would pretty be, be pretty much inept if I were asked to grow my own food right now. But I think we can start to unlink those dependencies that are taken for granted and normalized and that yet kind of reproduce these violences because they are, they're really not questioned and not destabilized. Um, the land question in the United States is particularly salient right now because researchers have been uh, looking into who is the largest landowner in the United States. And guess what? It, it's Bill Gates, which is interesting in so many ways because Gates is also trying to fund the new green revolution in Africa. He is partnering with the World Economic Forum to build, um, to effectively try to privatize the United Nations. Um, one thing I'm working on with colleagues right now is counter resistance to the UN Food Systems Summit, which is billing itself as this beautiful, inclusive, um, pro-gender, pro-peasant, pro-women's rights, um, dovetailing of science and uh, sustainable development to meet the needs of the 2030 sustainable de sustainable development agenda and it's it's grossly antithetical to um, the practice and process of food sovereignty basically because it was begun without the involvement of social movements without civil society groups and without any kind of half the world of social science that takes a critical read on a narrow econometric analysis of the food system. So we are organizing, trying to fend off the power of gates. But I think even in this process, a lot of times we get, we, we wade into governance only, and we are not ever talking about like, give the land back, give that damn land back in the United States to indigenous communities. We don't have to tell them how to work it that memory is there, that lived experience is there. 
they are the original agroecologists in the North American continent and in Latin America. It's just, it's particularly salient in the U.S. because we keep talking about where are the solutions? How do we do this? Where's the science? Where's the evidence? Where's the data? And the people who can do this and know how to have been robbed of their means of production. So I just want to put that out there. Also give a hat tip to the Red Nation podcast because I've just been in lockdown, living with other means of education and self-education and really been appreciating the work that they do, Red Media and the Red Power Hour. So yeah, that's where that comes from, partly. Two more questions for you. You mentioned one of the metabolic rifts uh, we are currently experiencing with agriculture today. You write, while industry made it possible for agriculture to grow increasingly mechanized, large-scale and input-intensive, the developing demographic split between urban and rural society forced a gap between production and consumption. When consumers had lived mostly on the land, waste products had naturally returned to the soil. The rural-urban rift took a renewable solution and created two problems, pollution in the city and soil infertility in the country. If separating urban consumers from the way their food is produced undermines that food production and pollutes cities contributing to public health issues, is our current rural-urban a rift is it sustainable and if it isn't sustainable is it going to collapse soon <laughs> i think it's not sustainable i think we have too many people eating and not enough people growing you know if you fly as i frequently do from tennessee to california to visit my family and go back to to work you'll see the majority of the midwest is is really vast monoculture agriculture that unfortunately has just been decimated um, via decades of neoliberalization and the fewer and fewer and fewer farmers, um, the enterprises of farming, the concentration of agriculture getting ever larger, but not really people on the land, farmers who work these fields, because I don't, I don't want to give the impression that I'm critiquing the farmers. They are pretty much just being driven to grow more corn, more soy, um, more cotton or canola at really cheap prices to feed, again, the grain traders. But that's not interesting. It's not fun. I mean, they're, they're on tractors or large combines that don't really require intricate in-depth knowledge of the ecological relations of the, you know, the soil microbes and the different insects, the butterflies that pollinate um, your livestock, um, which is another of those metabolic risks, by the way, probably the one that is more important to us now in the United States is looking at the concentration of animal agriculture and crop agriculture and thinking about bringing those two back together because the metabolic rift that is most salient, really what we've done is under the name of efficiency and specialization separated animals from crops. And then you get a pollution problem on one hand, you get a lack of soil fertility problem on the other, you wind up using synthetic inputs to drive industrial agriculture for the crops. You make the feed for the animals on those farms. The majority of production, going back to that yield question, is not to feed people, it's to feed the animals in those concentrated animal feeding operations, the CAFOs, that are also horribly inhumane, that pack animals, you know, beak to beak, snout to snout, tail to tail, create 
the perfect, perfect storm. It's an overused meme, but the perfect storm conditions for viruses and bacterial other pathogens to emerge and then really spread like wildfire through those CAFOs because those animals tend to be genetically uniform. So we are we are creating the perfect breeding grounds. We've separated the metabolic rift, the, the fertility that would otherwise flow from keeping livestock on the land. So I would say that is probably a more important urgent step right now is to re really rethink that metabolic rift. Also begin to think about land back and training for um, what colleagues and I have called it a new ecological workforce in the United States to get more people back onto the land and growing agroecologically to make those connections possible to understand how do you grow um, livestock and crops together? Because a lot of folks would say, oh, that's just horribly inefficient. We could never do that. You travel to my family's farm in Latin America, in Peru and um, Cajamarca Highlands, all the farms have chickens and pigs and goats uh, and sheep running around cows, that is actually very helpful. You get extra protein, you get milk, you get eggs. Those animals provide, you know, soil traction. They help to stamp the, the soil down. They eat a lot of the fodder, uh, a lot of the stover from um, the corn that people can't eat. They, they provide multiple functions. It would look very ludicrous for them to take the animals off the land. And yet we we have systematized that since um, middle of last century as normal. Um, and that is what's driving a lot of the, I think the potential for future pandemics is that rift. One last question for you, Maiwa. We've been speaking with Maiwa Montenegro-DeWitt, author of Abolitionist Agroecology, Food Sovereignty and Pandemic Prevention. You can follow Maiwa on Twitter at Maiwa Montenegro. And I can promise you right now that we're going to be annoying you in the future to have you back on the show because I'm really, I would really love to have a conversation with you about the UN Food Systems Conference and the couple of guests that you mentioned, the author of Freedom Farmers and Margarita Hernandez. I would love to have them on the show, so I might be getting in contact with you for contact information about them. But one last question, and our final question for all of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You also mentioned the victory abolitionists had when it comes to slavery. You write, after the Civil War, planters turned to convict leasing to keep this system intact still, despite legal emancipation. Though convict leasing was gradually phased out during the early 20th century, in most states, slave labor continues to service prison farms in the 21st century. Former plantations make up some of the 130,000 agricultural acres currently maintained and operated by the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. The Angola State Penitentiary remains a working plantation with inmates growing food for all of Louisiana's prisons and cattle for the open market. The prisoners do the farming under the supervision of shotgun carrying guards on horseback, which looks just like an image that you would see from the antebellum time. So as uh -huh. Fyodor Dostoevsky said, the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. What does it say about our society to you when working on a plantation in slave-like conditions is seen as justice? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Those visions that you're, you're talking about are, they sound antebellum in that article 
in the Atlantic about Angola that I was citing was written in 2015. You know, and I, I think that those uh, conditions of the ultimate unfreedom of being incarcerated and behind bars and then um, asked or demanded to, to work and produce land or produce cotton in that case under plantation-like conditions is, is just the paragon of a society that is still deeply um, embedded in, in racial capitalism. In this talk that I was referring to earlier, we were really fortunate to have um, one of our participants, his name is Lawrence, and he, he joined us from behind bars. And in a recorded video, he talked about the work that he's doing on the inside to grow food and to read and understand the roots of coloniality and imperialism. He quoted to us from Amilcar Cabral. I, I just froze up. Like, here I am. I'm supposed to be an academic. I'm supposed to know the things. And I, I just, like, I had goose pimples all over. I'm like even choking up now thinking about like how horrific it is on one hand to like be putting this on Zoom and this brother on the inside is talking about all the things, understanding the historical analysis of the means of his oppression and why he is in the place because he was a political prisoner and yet here he is. He read my piece and he was like, oh yeah, and it connects to what I'm doing by working the land and reviving life in and with the relations in the soil. And I, I was like, this is, this is magical. It was devastating to hear this coming from a young person who has a 30 year sentence. But I think this is exactly where we're at right now. And it's where the struggle is. It's why we always have to be talking about the abolitionist critique as a practice of loving and affirming and life-giving for me, that takes the form, the presence and the politics of agroecology. Um, but I think there are other ways of, of working in this movement and then we can therefore not see agroecology and, and abolition as kind of like these theoretical concepts that exist in parallel and always oh, aren't these interesting connections, but these are actual communities of people with whom we can build coalition and, and, and grow a larger, broader base movement. So that's how I'll end. Um, and I really want to thank you for having me on today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I just wanted to say one last thing. And, uh, you know, remembering that abolition is something that offers alternatives and not only as a site of negation is a really important thing for everybody to remember. My, well, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. Really fascinating writing and amazing conversation. I really appreciate it. And we're going to be annoying you, like I said, in the future to have you back on the show. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. I always have to wait a couple of seconds before reading this tagline because I would think that people are going to not want to come back on our show. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. If you like what you just heard from Iowa on abolitionist agroecology, please support completely listener-supported This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast, which features a brand-new monologue by me and a classic archived interview that is unavailable anywhere else online at patreon.com slash thisishell. Richard, please remind our listening audience what is this week's question from Elle and tell us how our listeners are responding. 
This week's question from L is, who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Warren L answers, that's the fun thing about revolutions. You never know who will be, who will go from being one of the cool kids to the scapegoat. I love that. We. <laughs> Ladio says, certainly not you. Meaning you, yeah. Mr. Charles. Yes. I'm having trouble coughing. <laughs> Aaron D answers the folks that maintain the Twitter servers. Nice. Jack B answers me, meaning himself. (laughs) Pedro N answers. I'm very suspicious of Jack B all of a sudden. (laughs) Why does he get to go last? (laughs) Exactly. Who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Pedro N answers hipsters with funny mustaches. (laughs) Mason W answers the first one. The first one now will later be the last. Oh, I keep on adding uh, prep, whatever. The first one now will later be last. For the times, they are a changing. Jesus. Wojak answers the lowly party functionary who forgot to order more bullets. Margie answers the level of gross liberalism is in these jokes is disgusting. Oh, sweet. <laughs> gross, gross liberalism. We know who just moved up on the list. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the last person who's going to be up against the wall. Borky B answers Bernie. <laughs> dot, 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 too soon? <laughs> who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? John T answers the tuck pointers. Or... The people who fix the walls. <laughs> I like that. Tynan S answers political cartoonists. And Neil C answers the last guy to turn a prophet. Just two more. All right. Who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Ramsey B answers Roger Waters. <laughs> and Aaron B answers there is no last. Permanent revolution. But if we do run out of terrible people, we can just shooting the corpses of Bezos and Musk until someone new is ready. <laughs> we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. Speaking of tomorrow's show, Richard, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live one hour show starting at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at this is hell.com. Tomorrow we have... Brazil correspondent Brian Muir on his Brazil Brazier Wire article, COVID-19 scandal, Brazilian military threatens Senate. And in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin tries to tame taboos with internet knowledge. Yeah, and uh, the subtitle for that Brian Muir article is Days After Visit by CIA Director, Top Military Brass Attempt to Pressure, End of Corruption Investigation Against General Eduardo Pazuelo and his former aide. So we'll be talking to Brian about that. Brian is actually here in Chicago, suffering from the same cold that I've been suffering from for the last three weeks. We were trying to decide if we could have him here in studio. I don't want anybody in this interview booth after I've talked in here for an hour because I have no idea how communicable my cold still is. He may be here in studio in the control room in the producer's booth doing the moment of truth, or moment of truth, doing uh, giving us his... Uh, 
uh, report on what's happening within Brazil, or he might be doing it via Skype. Same thing with uh, Jeff Dorchin, because Jeff Dorchin is also going to be in town tomorrow, and we're trying to determine how we can have him possibly do the moment of truth from right here in the studio. So tune in for both of our guests tomorrow. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to Maya Montenegro, our guest today. Thanks to Richard Norwood for uh, producing. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's and all of this week's guests. You have been listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. Go ahead, I dare you. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>